Hi, Laura. It's wonderful to speak with you today. How are Hi. you and, and where are you calling us from? I'm in Milan. It's uh, 6 p.m. right here, uh, right now. Um, it's nice to meet you too. <laughs> and I remember we were both in the climate change team uh, mm -hmm. during the project. And I remember you would do some of the calls from a lab coat and it kind of looked like you were in a hospital. Do, do you work in a hospital or in a lab? Yes, actually, I am a PhD student and, uh, and also I am a psychologist. Uh, so I work as PhD student with patients. So uh, I, uh, I'm doing the PhD at University of Pavia, but I see patients for my research in the hospital in Milan. Uh, and that's why I work in the hospital, but I am a, a researcher. Um, in particular, I, I studied neuropsychologists, uh, and that is the, the part of psychology that deals with people uh, with brain injuries. Uh, so also my research and my PhD project is focused on uh, try to find new ways of rehabilitation, cognitive rehabilitation for those kind of patients. Wow. And in your long-term goals, do you have any crossovers with data science as well in, in form of um, cognitive neuroscience and data science? Yes. Um, I need data science for the research part. So not, not to deal with patients, but to analyze all the data. Uh, and also because the project um, also involves um, fMRI, that is a technique uh, of MRI machine, where you can see the, the brain in action. So you need to, to know uh, cognitive neuroscience and to analyze data from uh, fMRI. Uh, so this part of statistics, the, the one that deals with, uh, uh, with uh, brain and how brain works, not only in patients, but also in healthy people. Because to, to understand uh, why someone that has a brain injury um, develop one kind of problem, you need to know what, uh, what that particular brain area does. So you study that in healthy people and then uh, you deal with patients. In this moment, I work with patients, but when I study at university, for example, I studied a lot about cognitive neuroscience and uh, healthy, healthy people. And yes. And what brought you to the Responsible Digital Leadership Project? And how did you hear about it? And what motivated you to join? Uh, well, I, I heard about it uh, thanks to my university because one of our professors sent a, an email to all PhD students. Uh, and she said that we can apply for that. Uh, I've always been interested in ethics and in philosophy. And that's why I decided to join. But also because before my PhD, I also worked in a, a company that um, it was a company that works a lot with virtual reality, augmented reality and new technologies. And I worked there as neuroscience consultant. Uh, so it was a, a job outside academia. 
and it makes it makes me realize how much in the real world outside academia uh, everything goes very very fast and every one of us uh, deal every day with technologies that uh, not always we as scientists understand how uh, it interacts with brain and with our psychology. So I think that is very interesting to, um, to think about ethical dilemmas when we interact with uh, technology. Uh, and it's something that um, I have the, the chance, I had the chance to see when I worked there in, the, in that field. Uh, and that's why I decided to join uh, the project. What type of uh, expertise or, or what type of work did you bring to these virtual reality and augmented reality development companies? And, and what did they want to use you for? And, and what types of things did you learn from your experience? Um, they asked me, um, asked me mostly about um, uh, how, uh, how our technology impacts the brain. But that, that's the question. <laughs> we don't always know. Uh, I try to um, read paper and uh, try to explain to them the, the, the things like uh, when you use something, uh, for example, an image, uh, too many um, colorful or too fast, uh, you can cause this kind of uh, um, emotion, this kind of emotion, or when you use rhythm uh, be, uh, below heart, uh, heart rhythm, you can relax people and st stuff like that. But actually, the and this is the the problem because the um, this is um, why I, I told you before that uh, academia and real world are different because they ask sometimes questions that as scientists we could not answer not not yet at least uh, and that's why we need to connect more uh, and I think that scientific neuroscientific uh, research is very important uh, because uh, technology can help our lives but it needs to be done in the proper way and and it is an ethical dilemma of course yeah yeah that's really interesting how with a lot of technologies that are coming out now they aren't tested on people they, they don't really go through any uh, or much neuroscience experimentation or, or any type of test of, of sociology either before mm -hmm. they're introduced to the world because they just have the phrase innovative slapped on them or, um, or yeah, or technologically progressive. And then that's almost innately a good thing. Whereas any, any other type of um, emerging science has, goes through uh, extensive testing and, and, and it has to have rigorous proof that it's not going to be harmful to mm -hmm. society or to individuals. So is it is it true that that technologies or AI algorithms can be harmful to people's uh, yeah I, I guess from from a neuroscience makeup can they be can they be harmful to people? Uh, I think so. 
uh, I'm, I'm also convinced that they can be useful. For example, with virtual reality, you can also uh, help people. There are studies that show that some patients uh, have benefits in using virtual reality, uh, for example, for, move, for movement rehabilitation or for cognitive rehabilitation in when, when they have to um, deal with the space. It's, it's a safer place when you have the, um, the monitor uh, instead of going directly outside and do, deal with the world. But uh, at the same time, you need to know uh, which are the, the limits of that. Because, for example, virtual reality can also cause nausea or sometimes um, there are people that with certain kinds of uh, augmented reality or too fast uh, videos, uh, they can cause epilepsy. epilepsy. Mm -hmm. um, it's um, it depends a lot on the person of the history of neurological uh, yes neurological um, history. <laughs> um, it depends a lot. Uh, sometimes also also to healthy people, uh, you need to stay. Um, uh, you need to to be careful because uh, when you have the, when you are in a virtual reality, your brain doesn't uh, recognize anymore which are, which is uh, the reality world and which is the virtual world. Mostly now that there are technologies can that can be also physical uh, because. Once virtual reality was also only the the, the desk, desktop uh, where you you see images but you can feel or listen to anything. But now there are also sensors in your skin. There are uh, a lot of things that can make you feel like you are in there, and it could be dangerous. Uh, but also, it could be a, a, um, an important thing to rehabilitate people. So it depends on how you use it and um, if there are um, professional that, professionals that guide guides you uh, in, the, in the using these kind of technologies. So what do you think is a responsible way to use that technology from, from as, as an expert of neuroscience, how, how can we know when it would be beneficial and when it would be harmful? And how much time do you think it would take to um, decide one or the other? Uh, it depends if you're talking about it from um, a general population point of view or uh, for patients. Because when you talk about patients, you need to know the neurological history. So for example, if a patient with a lot of uh, stroke or epilepsy, there are doctors that need to understand if the patient can deal with the, the technology. In the general population, I think 
could be dangerous with little kids because we don't know uh, how this can, um, how it deals with their development. Um, and really, I don't know, probably you need just to uh, listen to yourself, understand if, if it makes you sick, because if you were the device and you feel nausea, you need to get out from the virtual reality immediately. Uh, and maybe uh, try to not be in the virtual world for too many hours a day. Because more, the more you stay in the virtual world, the more you can be confused uh, from the reality. Uh, reality. <laughs> Is it concerning to you at all? In, in the Bay Area, there's a huge uh, funding push in the future for uh, virtual reality technologies and, and um, Meta now uh, with previously Facebook is now putting capital towards virtual reality and and I think their vision is to have people on it for long spans of time because they have um, a whole section a, a whole branch of the company now focused on on your work life so you'd have you use VR as um, integrated with your work and then they also have social and and, and gaming uh, is that concerning to you that they're that there are companies who envision virtual reality being integrated with everyday life or? No, uh, so I don't want to see, I don't want to, I don't want you to think that uh, I'm against uh, yeah. virtual reality, augmented reality and new technology. Uh, I'm also, I'm only concerned about the way it will be used. Um, because actually, as I said before, you can use augmented reality for uh, helping people, uh, for connect connecting people. You can use augmented reality to, um, to help also workers uh, to create uh, rooms uh, which, um, or in which in where you can have uh, relaxing lights and particular stuff happening around. Um, but you need to, um, to think about it, uh, to think the design of this kind of um, realities, uh, augmented realities, um, in the proper way to, uh, to help people and, and not to stress them. If you use too many lights, uh, lights of some colors and not other colors uh, um, or music too loud, you can harm people because we are living in a world with uh, um, very um, cognitive uh, overload. Mm -hmm. We are always, yes, stimulated with different uh, things lights, um, music, also rumors when you, you go around the city, uh, the spots all around. Um, and it can harm also the way we, we sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, if you create an augmented room with virtu virtual reality, augmented reality, or your mess immersive reality, mm -hmm. where 
you need to calm people. You need to think about it and think and take this into consideration. Maybe you need an immersive room where you um, turn lights off. It, it, it's strange to, to think about technology in this kind of way because we think new technologies, a lot of things. I need to do a lot of things and create lots of things. But it's not always the right thing to the brain. So um, I think it's nice that it's a good thing that these companies invest on new technology, but they also, I think they also have to invest on neuroscientists that yeah. told us how to do uh, in the good way. Yeah. And it's a very important point that you bring up too, that just because there are bad and concerning perspectives that come from new technologies doesn't mean that there's not benefits either. I think a lot of times ethicists tend to only wrist slap when, they, when they're in the, uh, when they're shown in the public um, through articles and, and through consultation. And I think it's, and, and then why would people really want to listen to ethicists if they only have bad things to say about a technology? So I, I think it's important to point out the benefits that they could bring um, and then weigh them. Um, and, and from a cognitive neuroscience perspective, have you seen through this project how fintechs can take advantage of cognitive bias? Um, exa for example, through AI or algorithms or other tools? Um, yes, I'm, well, I don't know uh, a lot about the fin finance world. Uh, and that's one of the, um, the things that I like in this project because I had the chance to work with people experts in these fields and discuss with them about things that I didn't know before. Um, and uh, I, I work in this project from my point of view. So I try to understand um, how to, um, to link uh, neuroscientific studies with FinTech world and artificial intelligence or other, um, or machine learning and so on. Um, one thing that I found very interesting is the, is um, that um, so one thing that I thought about a lot is that when you deal with industries and, fin and fin finance world, um, you ask, for example, for uh, transparency. Mm -hmm. And this is not always, um, uh, it's not always easy to have transparency. Uh, both because maybe they don't want to tell you everything they, they do, but sometimes also because it's a very complicated word. And when you deal with finance and where, for example, when you ask um, where do the money go? <laughs> where, where do they invest? Where do my bank invest? Um, I think artificial intelligence can help you to, um, to have this answer because uh, it, uh, takes, it takes outside uh, uh, the people, <laughs> it's bad to say this um, in this way, but it takes outside the human error and yeah. it, it helps uh, transparency. 
At the same time, uh, artificial intelligence is programmed by people. So it can have uh, cognitive biases inside. So when you, for example, um, program an artificial intelligence to track uh, um, something in the, financial, in the financial world, to track an investment, for example, you, only, you also need to, um, and I, I talk about this in the, in the climate team. So for example, you want to, uh, to track the, um, uh, the investment uh, on sustainability. How, how much my bank is sustainable? Okay, I track, I, pro, uh, um, I program the artificial intelligence that can um, track the investment. It will be safe uh, because it's, uh, there, will be, there will not be any human error on the tracking. But if I am the human that programs it, I can decide before which are the sustainable uh, investment and which are not. I need to set um, a rule on uh, will be this sustainable or not. And this kind of uh, decision is a cognitive decision and uh, it can have uh, biases. Uh, so this is the, um, the way I think it, it is all connected. Yeah, if, if you have an AI that tracks how sustainable your investments are, um, uh, sustainable towards the environment, but they use data that doesn't necessarily accurately determine sustainability, you're going to get, you're going to, it's, it's called garbage in garbage out. If you get put in bad data, you're going to get out bad data. Like if you, you might get a high score because you invest in companies that uh, say that they're carbon neutral, but they're not truly carbon neutral because they uh, pool all of their resources from uh, developing countries and, and use uh, um, incredible amount of fossil fuels to do so, um, and and in funding them, you're you're then funding yeah those projects. So yeah, it's it's very tricky. Um, yes, and there are also uh, a thing that is called the cognitive dissonance, mm. and I think it could be also you need to take also this into consideration because maybe a bank decide to to be more sustainable and mm -hmm. decide to uh, invest on um, industries carbon free, for example. Mm -hmm. But uh, at the same time, in the in the bank, they still use plastic, or they uh, I don't know. They do uh, other things that are not sustainable. Mm -hmm. But cognitive dissonance is that mechanism um, in which for you um, when you uh, ignore something and uh, when you are um, informed about something new that is against those information that you already have but are in contrast to them you ignore that thing mm. so it, it's a dissonance mm. okay uh, and 
it, this is a, a, another problem because maybe I think, okay, my bank um, is sustainable because they invest on that. But at the same time, they are investing in other 10 industries that are more polluting, uh, that are, I don't know, um, that are causing harm to uh, environment. But I don't see that because of my cognitive dissonance. That's interesting. So, so I would think that computers and, and AI, they don't have cognitive dis dissonance. They can't decide what to see and what not to see, but the people who create them, they might choose not to include certain data metrics because they feel it wouldn't produce the right outcome. Um, yes. Mm. And that's a problem about the, pro the persons that program those kinds of machine of tracking artificial intelligence and so on. Uh, because, of course, when we deal with climate change, we are talking about uh, changing in lifestyles. Uh, we're talking about changing that are cultural, that are um, very difficult to uh, to accept from all of us mm. uh, because we need to stop uh, using cars. We need to uh, try to not uh, eat meat and other animal stuffs. Mm -hmm. And we need to uh, stop using plastics and we need to do lots of things. Uh, banks need to uh, not invest on uh, industries that are... Uh, um, polluting, and that uh, maybe that are also the the industries that uh, now in this moment of the history are the more um, rich, and mm -hmm. so it's a very difficult uh, change in, in lifestyles. So, and that's why we have cognitive dissonance. We don't want to see that we have had to change because changing is difficult. Yeah. Uh, and that's another uh, motivation uh, because I think that psychologists uh, need to help this changing and need to understand how we can deal with the, uh, climate change, for example, and the changes that climate change force us to do um, and to try to understand, to help people deal with it and also to um, to create artificial intelligence, machine learning that help us deal with this changing and that um, then that, that doesn't have um, uh, this dissonance in themselves. Yeah, I, I know in, in working with the climate change team that one of the one of the hard decisions that financial companies in particular have to make is, uh, sacrificing short-term profits for long-term sustainability. And in a way, companies yes. try to get best of both worlds is using greenwashing, which is a, a term that you've written about in, a, in one of your dilemmas. W would you like to share a little bit about greenwashing and what it is and, and what maybe some of its consequences are? Yes, um, it's, uh, I think it's a term that derives from uh, another um, 
no, niente, non lo trovo. In, I can find it in English. I think it's uh, it is a term that uh, uh, arrives from another world, uh, probably the fashion world, uh, because it's when a company um, said to be sustainable, to be green, but it actually it is not. Uh, for example, when they, uh, the, the fashion industry, for example, um, said that they uh, use recycled materials, but they only made, I don't know, uh, one collection recyclable, recyclable, but all the other stuff they do are not. So it's this kind uh, of thing is greenwashing. And I uh, try to analyze if uh, this thing is, uh, happens also in, the, in banks, in finance industry. And indeed, uh, sometimes they do this. Uh, and it's the thing that I said before. For example, they say, uh, we invest uh, on green industry. Okay, but how much you invest on them and how much you invest on a lot of other industries that are not uh, sustainable. So this is greenwashing. When I say I am green, but uh, it's, it's not true in the end. Um, and the thing that happens when you, uh, when you do greenwashing is that um, people outside can can't understand, of course, if, uh, if it's true, because people uh, can know your data, can know actually what, what banks do, does, what banks do. <laughs> um, so I, uh, the, the general population can have access to the data from a bank. Uh, and there, there aren't actually the uh, specific limits or rules that, that tells a bank or a finance sector how to be sustainable. So every bank can um, do whatever he wants. Just, they can just invest on, on one thing and say, okay, I am sustainable, even if they, uh, they aren't, because there aren't rules. So when, uh, when a bank uh, does greenwashing, it maintains the status quo. So uh, it can not motivate the bank to do better because um, it's, it's an easy thing to do. Uh, I can just change one of my things, uh, say to, to my clients that I do that thing and it's okay because people doesn't, don't understand me. They rely on the confirmation bias that is uh, a cognitive bias in which we see uh, the thing that we already believe. So I think that, for example, my bank is sustainable. Uh, my bank tells me that they invest on one industry that is sustainable and I'm okay with it. Uh, I don't uh, go to see if uh, that bank also does 
other uh, thousand of uh, actions that are not sustainable. I rely on my confirmation bias. I want to believe. I want to believe that I am a sustainable person, that I care about the environment, and uh, my confirmation bias uh, decides for me to believe to my bank. And when um, it says that is uh, sustainable, maybe artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, linking to uh, linking with uh, um, specific rules uh, for every for everyone in the finance sectors that tells our which, what are sustainable and what are not. Maybe those things all together can prevent from cognitive dissonance and can help people to go beyond uh, co uh, beyond confirmation bias and look for really sustainable um, sectors. And I know that you're very passionate about animal rights and you're and outside of the Responsible Digital Leadership Project, you're involved in a project that works on sustainability and and and, and promoting plant-based diets. Um, do you think that also ties into the intersection between uh, climate change prevention, technology, and, and finance? And also, what is the importance of it too? In and of itself, what is the importance of animal rights and, and plant-based diets? Yes, this is a huge question and it is very important to me also. Um, yes, I think there, there, are, there is a very um, strong link between those things. Uh, again, because, you know, because of cognitive dissonance and because probably also economic interest, interest um, the, the world, uh, the finance sector and sometimes organization doesn't, that don't want you to know that um, animal uh, agriculture is the, is more polluting than uh, the transport sec sectors. Uh, so we all talk about uh, stop using cars. That is a very important thing, of course. Uh, but we also need to uh, not eat meat because uh, of climate change. Uh, but no one talks about it because when you talk about food, you are talking about uh, even more important values, cultural values. Uh, so a, a more um, even more big change in the lifestyle and also about economic interests. interests. Uh, and um, I think it's very uh, linked with uh, uh, animal rights because I personally think that in the modern world, we don't need to uh, um, violate animals, kill animals to eat uh, and to uh, make only rich people eat because to to raise an animal to um, and to maintain an animal and then kill to uh, to have meat, you need to deforest the world uh, and you need to um, 
uh, at, with the same amount of space that you need to create one kilo, for example, of meat, you can uh, have a lot, a lot of uh, vegetables. So uh, with, um, with a plant-based diet, we can um, have, um, we can make poor people have access to food. And uh, so I think that in, in this modern world, uh, we don't need to eat meat to be, um, to be healthy. Uh, and it's, uh, it is a very complicated thing to, to, to talk about because uh, people, because of cognitive dissonance, does, mostly of time, doesn't want to see what happens to those animals that they that they eat and doesn't want to know that people don't want to know that um, eating meat is very polluting uh, does that they don't want to know that if you are eating meat uh, you are taking foods and water uh, from poor people um, and I think that's why uh, we don't talk a lot about it and the finance sector uh, don't talk about it. And that project about the plant-based um, um, treaty is a treaty that uh, asks organizations and governments to start talking about it. Uh, because we need also uh, the finance world to invest on new kind of um, agriculture, uh, more sustainable, uh, to stop the deforestation, to stop um, treating animals in the way they are treating right now. Uh, it, I think it's all connected, animal rights and environmental uh, uh, economies, of course. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I, I think if we look uh, two or three generations ahead, they will look back on us and, and think that this, uh, the way we do animal agriculture and our lack of respect for animal rights may be one of our, our biggest moral failings. Because you're right, I mean, the inf information exists and, and it shows how morally wrong it is the way we treat animals and also how we, don't, we have the technology now and, and we should take those other options. And the reason we don't is, you're right, it's a form of cognitive dissonance. It's animals taste good. And that's enough reason alone to look the other way. And it's very unfortunate. And, and um, I, I hope there's progress made on that soon. Yes, yes. Now the technology is so advanced that we can create meat that yeah. it seems really seems meat, but it's not from animals. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever tasted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it really seems me. Yeah. Uh, and um, and this is a a fantastic way to use technologies and uh, scientific progress because using that kind of thing we can have uh, the meat taste and the same uh, uh, nutrients of the meat, but we don't um, kill anyone and we don't pollute the environment. So if we use the technology in the right way, we can help also 
also this kind uh, of things. And still, if uh, the finance sectors and economies and these industries invest on those kind of technology and of those kind of actions, um, everything could be uh, better for the for the climate change. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm really hoping too that plant-based meats and, and development for plant-based meats receives appropriate funding. And yeah, the finance sector can certainly play a role in that. But I, I also think it will turn out differently in different places, in different parts of the globe as well. It, it, it might happen faster in Europe than it does in the U.S. And and um, that that's unfortunate. But relating to that topic of, of global diversity, in um, your experience with the Responsible Digital Leadership Project, um, do you have any takeaways for how to work best in a diverse environment? And, and what was your initial reaction working in such a diverse team and, and diverse meaning culturally and linguistically and um, disciplinarily too? Uh, well, uh, actually I loved it. I love to work with different people from all over the world. Uh, at, the, um, at the start of the project, I was a bit worried, uh, mostly uh, about the professional backgrounds. Uh, because sometimes we can't understand each other, I think. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it was very um, uh, insightful for me. Uh, I learned a lot of things from other um, people. Uh, I hope that they also learned something from, from me. Um, well, uh, apart from difficulties about, of course, time zones and uh, uh, because some of us need to stay up till late uh, or wake up very early in the morning to to connect but it's of course it's it's normal because we are all around the world um, sometimes some difficulty with languages uh, because not only I can I myself can explain myself in the in the right way not and sometimes it was difficult to maybe understand people that whose uh, first language is not english uh, but uh, apart from this uh, i don't really had very difficulty uh, actually uh, I think that also uh, the cultural background uh, that we had that sometimes were very uh, different. Actually, it helped us to have more uh, information to think about things. Um, I had uh, to think about uh, uh, some topics that are, um, for, for example, expressed by African people that I've never thought about before in my life. So yes, it's different from my culture, but it's also very interesting for me. Um, I think uh, also that we are uh, from different uh, cultural, but we all uh, always be very open-minded and we also all of time listen to each other uh, so I, I really appreciate it and don't have any to I, I wouldn't change something in particular in 
of this kind of aspect. You learned a lot working with people from other countries and in parts of the world who you might not have worked with in an academic environment before that. Um, yes. Why do you think it's important to have global discussions and agreements on data ethics and artificial intelligence and emerging sciences? Okay, I think it's very important because different parts of the world need different, uh, have different priorities. I've never, uh, as I said before, I learn a lot and I think about new stuff from African people because they live probably in a different, uh, of course, in a very different environment than mine. And I've never thought about uh, technology in their world. So we, we cannot uh, think that uh, we can discuss about technology only in Europe, for example, or only in America, because different parts of the world need different things and deal with technology in different ways. Uh, and, and that's why I think it's very important to, to talk with, with all and to discuss with all of us all around the world. Laura, we're now at the top of the hour, um, but I want to thank you so much for, for taking time out of your evening to talk to us. I really enjoyed this discussion and I hope yes, to talk to you again soon in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I hope to be, to have been uh, clear. Sorry for my English, not always perfect. But... Oh, you're wonderful. Yeah, all very clear. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for, the, for the meeting. Yeah. Have a great night. And have a great day. <laughs>